You're listening to The Real Investment Show. A couple of things that sounded funny over the weekend. My wife was out with my daughter, and they were out running around. And, of course, uh, you know she's getting ready to go to school here soon, and she's been putting in a lot of extra hours working, particularly over the Thanksgiving holiday, you know, to save up some extra cash because, you know, college is coming up. And, uh, you know, it was interesting because she was out running around with her, and, and uh, she ran into a friend of hers that uh, she used to run track with, and the mom was actually the track coach. And so my wife and her mom got to talking together, and the two girls kind of got off in the background somewhere, and they were talking about whatever they were talking about. Well, the, you know, the one girl is talking to my daughter, and she kind of starts talking really loud, you know, so that mom could actually kind of overhear the conversation. She goes, yeah, my parents aren't paying for any of my college, hoping to get some sympathy from my daughter, who quickly piped back, yeah, neither are mine. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes conversations don't go as well as you hope. <laughs> she was hoping to get some support, you know. I'm sure the conversation has been in the household. Well, all of my friends' parents are paying for college. Yeah, I've seen we had that same conversation in our house, right? So now it was nice to see, you know, two sympathetic individuals getting together. It's like, oh, your parents aren't paying for college either? No. And it was funny because uh, the, the the girl's mom talked to my to, to, said to my wife, and she looked at her, and then she goes, you're not paying for college? And my wife's like, I'm not going broke. <laughs> so she goes, I'm trying to get moved to North Carolina. She's on her own. <laughs> so, you know, but we've talked about this on the show before. But it was interesting because, again, it was, it's one of those things where, you know, kids think that every, you know, they, what they see on social media is the way it is everywhere. And, you know, maybe it is in a lot of cases, in a lot of corners. But uh, in, in reality, it's probably not. So, <laughs> She was very disappointed when she got home, by the way. <laughs> so, again, this uh, Omicron variant, of course, is, you know, kind of the, the big headline news right now. It's kind of everywhere in the markets. And, you know, the, the concern, of course, is, you know, when it comes to the financial markets in particular and the economy, of course, is what does this mean? As, as you know, the, the first initial knee-jerk reaction is, oh my gosh, we're going to lock down the economy again. And, and the question is, is will we do that? And my suspicion is, and look, again, you, you can't discount what politicians will do because they don't always think logically about consequences. And a lot of their, you know, and, and the big majority of the decisions that are made by politicians are, are done on a knee-jerk reaction. You know, we don't have real thoughtful politicians that plan ahead and say, we need to do these things so that in the future we'll be prepared for these potential outcomes and events. So we don't have that type of, of political thinking. What we have is a group of individuals that run the country that simply react to consequences and emotions as they occur. And so that's what I'm saying. You can't fully discount the idea that the, the government may come out and say, we need to shut down the economy again because of this new variant. I doubt that's the case. Experience has taught us that lockdowns really aren't that good for the economy. It causes a lot of problems, causes economic recession. And the question becomes already, and, and is, is the ability to shut down the economy again because you already have surging rates of inflation because of all the money that was injected into the economy at the time. 
We pulled forward a lot of consumption on whether it's durable goods or retail sales or whatever it was. And we've caused now this inflationary pressure in the economy and the disruption of supply chains. So, again, can you imagine if you shut down the economy again, what you're going to do to supply chains? You know, there is some evidence that shutdowns of the economy are not really good. And then the other question becomes is can the Fed actually provide enough liquidity to support another shutdown entirely. You know, we don't know. The, the problem with all the liquidity injections is they have what's called an efficacy to them. In other words, the more that you do it, the less effect it has. It's kind of like doing drugs in a way. You've got to keep doing more and more drugs more and more often to get the same effect you had previously. It's the efficacy rate of, of that. So, again, so you see the same thing in monetary in, injections into the economy, which is often equated to crack. <laughs> um, because you've got to keep doing more of it to get the same relative effect. And so this is why we've seen each, as an example, since 2009, we've seen successive rounds of quantitative easing, and each round has had to be bigger than the previous round in order to get the same relative effect. So, you know, will we shut down the economy? And probably not. You know, I, I think the odds are extremely low of that. I won't discount them out entirely because, again, you never know what, what politicians will do. And there's, a, there's certainly a bias with the current environment to make more exaggerated decisions economically speaking, than probably are warranted based on survival rates, et cetera. But argument for a different day. But looking at this, again, the CDC announced over the weekend, no cases of it yet in the U.S. Of course, we're starting to see some cases in the U.K. and starting to spread out otherwhere. So the question now becomes is, with countries already starting to move back towards lockdown, as we, as we mentioned in the, in the first segment, Japan's already kind of locking down. You know, we'll see other countries begin to do this as well. Does this begin to impact global economic growth again? And what does that mean for markets that are extremely overvalued, extremely extended? That's the big question, right? It's, and, and this is the one thing that we've talked about kind of, re, you know, kind of repeatedly over the last year or so. There's certainly very clear evidence that the markets are in bubble territory, right? And, and, and how do you recognize a bubble? Well, you don't, unfortunately, until after it pops. And you look, everybody looks back and goes, oh, yeah, that was obviously a bubble. But there's certainly some signs that we have bubble-like activity in the economy, record IPOs, record SPAC issuance, record speculation and options. I mean, these are the things that you see at the peak of a bubble-type environment in the markets where there's a disregard for risk. And so the question always becomes then, what is it that changes that environment? So what causes a bubble to pop is simply a change of psychology. That's it. To have the bubble, you have to have a psychology that is devoid of risk. And what I mean by that is, is that simply there's a complete disregard of risk. You know, we often, as you know, often here on the show, we use poker or gambling as, as an example because that's really all investing is. It is gambling. 
And I don't mean that in a bad way, like, you know, you're a gambler, you're addicted to it. And although there's some certain some similarities to that and, you know, we have this very interesting idea as individuals that somehow magically we're investors and we're investing in companies because, you know, we're Warren Buffett. We're not Warren Buffett. <laughs> if you want to invest, if you want to be an investor, so to speak, then go invest money in a private company a small business that you can own and operate and control the outcome of. That's being an investor. You're growing something very long-term. You're investing in that. And it is a long-term prospect to generate wealth. If you're putting money into ethereal pieces of paper, hoping they go up in price with an average holding period of less than six months, you're a speculator. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's, you know, don't be shocked or appalled that I'm calling you a speculator because I'm a speculator. Anybody that invests in the markets is a speculator. None of us are investors because we have no control over what the companies do that we put money into. We are only buying pieces of paper hoping that I can sell them at a higher price to someone else. That is the pure and simple definition of speculation, period, end of story. And there's nothing wrong with it. Just understand that you're not an investor and that you are a speculator and trade accordingly. Manage risk. And as, I, and as I said, we often use gambling as an example of this because gambling is the purest representation of speculation. You're simply betting on a, on a, you know, a, a hand of cards or you know, dice or whatever your favorite game is, but you're gambling on an outcome and you're betting accordingly to the amount of risk that you're willing to take. In other words, how much money are you willing to lose on a pair of twos in a poker hand versus a full house, right? You're going to bet more on the full house than you are on the pair of twos because your odds of winning are higher and you instinctively know that, so you bet more. It's the same thing in the financial markets. But in, when we get into these bubble environments, we, keep, we, we absolutely forget that there's a risk of loss because we stop losing money. Markets just go up every day. So what do you mean there's a risk? But when we get to a market that is completely devoid of risk thinking, that's what sets up the environment for that psychological shift back to risk. In other words, investors all of a sudden begin to worry about risk. There's a change in the speculative psychology of investors from a risk-on basis to a risk-off. And you saw that on Friday. And one thing that we've talked about before is that because of the very low levels of liquidity in the markets, in other words, for every action in the markets, there has to be a buyer and a seller. Right now, buyers are a lot lower in price which causes these big gaps in the markets. Now, Friday was a very short day, very light trading, but it shows you where the buyers and the sellers are and that gap that's in between. So the risk is something happens with this virus or whatever else it is that changes the thinking of investors from risk on to risk off. That's the thing you want to be paying attention to. Be right back after the break. Market's set to open up a little bit this morning. Um, 
futures are up about 33 points on the S&P, but fair value is a negative $4. So you're going to be opening about 28 points in the S&P. Now, that's down sharply from overnights where S&P was up about 60 points. So again, after Friday's route, looking to open up a little bit this morning, not surprising. Um, as we were talking about in the opening segment, though, be a little careful here because we're about to move into mutual fund distributions and you know, that's going to put some additional selling pressure on the markets. And, and just in case you're not familiar with what's going on, just let me recap for you very quickly. Uh, every year, mutual funds are required to issue out their capital gains, dividends, and interests. And this is why you're going to see a sharp drop in your mutual funds one morning. You're going to wake up and look at your account and see your mutual fund down a dollar, whatever it is. Don't panic, right? The fund didn't crash. Um, it's that's the distribution. In a couple of days, it'll work itself all out. You'll either get more shares of your fund if you dividend reinvest, or you'll get cash in your account. One of the two. But those funds are going to have to sell stuff because right now mutual funds have some of the lowest levels of cash on record. So they're going to have to sell some stuff in order to make those distributions. So we could see, and again, this isn't an absolute guarantee. I'm not absolutely telling you the markets are going to be sloppy over the next couple of weeks. I'm just saying that historically speaking, because of this requirement of mutual funds, that we could see some pressure on prices over the next couple of weeks. So don't be surprised. Now, that'll set us up potentially for the seasonally strong ending of the year. So be looking for some opportunity to put some capital to work here and things that you've been looking at, right? Um, one thing we talked about this past weekend is oil and energy stocks. Oil's had a very big correction here over the last couple of weeks because of the rise of the dollar as, as for one reason, but also, too, just because of what's been going on with the pressure from the administration on oil companies as well. Uh, you know, Biden looking to now increase fees on offshore, onshore drilling companies for drilling leases. So more cost. You know, one of the big problems has been that oil prices have been going up, you know, 60, 70, 80 dollars a barrel. That's increasing, you know, price of gasoline at the pump. And, you know, that's gotten the administration's attention, obviously, because that's inflationary pressures on voters. So the president has made some overt tones, of course, in trying to do things to fix the problem of high gas prices at the pump, such as saying, or such as really, I should say, charging the Department of Justice to investigate oil companies into potential price gouging. Oil companies don't set oil prices. He's also talked about and, and did release strategic petroleum reserves, which kind of a drop in the bucket for the amount of consumption that we've got going on right now between global supply and demand. OPEC Plus is not looking at increasing production. Why would they? They like high oil prices, so no real incentive for them to increase production. So this recent correction in oil prices may be a decent opportunity to start looking around and finding some good opportunities in the oil and gas sector and the energy sector in particular because higher oil prices are likely to be with us for a little while. Now, I'm not saying indefinitely, but at least for a little while because of just the environment that we're in, the, the continued attacks kind of on production side, you know, shutting down oil pipelines, increasing fees on oil companies, you know, those type of things. Those are not going to 
encourage more drilling. And as we talked about in this past weekend's newsletter, which is on our website right now, there is one of the biggest disconnects right now between the amount of oil rigs that are out there producing versus the price of oil. Normally, when you have higher prices of oil, you see a big surge in rig counts as oil companies go out to drill more because of high oil prices. Makes sense, right? Oil prices are high. Why wouldn't I want to drill more, capture more of that business? But they're not doing that right now to a great degree. And we've got some of the, we've got some of the largest disconnects right now between oil rigs and the price of oil that we've seen in some time. And normally these that type of suppression leads to much higher oil prices, at least in the near term. So again, this recent correction back below 70, I'm not sure we're, we're quite through that correction yet, but we are getting pretty oversold here. So again, don't run out and just put your entire portfolio into oil and gas stocks, but there may be an opportunity to pick up something of value at a bit of a discount. And relative to a lot of the other companies in the in the financial markets, whether it's tech or um, you know some discretionary stocks, et cetera, which have had huge runs over the course of the last year, there's actually some value. You know, if we're talking about value versus growth, there's actually some value in the energy sector. So again, just something to maybe consider, something we're going to be looking at as well. But again, you know, this is this recent correction we've had in oil prices, you know, maybe an opportunistic kind of positioning uh, as we had in the year. Just something to think about. Uh, again, I kind of I kind of did a bit of a analysis on this in this past weekend's newsletter. So if you go by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, and just click on the newsletter link at the top, it'll bring up the latest uh, part of the newsletter. We kind of go through the analysis on, you know, where we are in prices and and this recent correction. And, then, and by the way, this correction in oil price is something that we wrote about on October the 15th. Um, back in October, we wrote an article talking about the commitment of traders report. And, you know, at that point, a lot of the speculation of traders that trade on oil prices were very long oil. And, and generally, when you have a large number of people kind of all on one side of the boat in terms of you know expectations, something else tends to occur. And so we discussed this potential correction in oil prices back in October. So here we are. Now we're looking for the opportunity to take advantage of that. And again, this is why we do this analysis. And, and again, you know, as investors, it's always kind of important to understand this is that things don't just go straight up. And, and the mistake that most investors make is, you know, when things are going up, it's like, oh, I've got to get in because it's going up. But if you wind up overpaying for something, not doing the homework, you're going to, you know, wind up losing money on it. And it happens all the time. And, and, and one of the mistakes that investors often make is, is they see something going up, right? And, and, oh, I'm missing out. I've got to get into it. So they buy it without doing any, you know, homework on a technical basis or even a fundamental basis. They just buy it because it's going up in price. But you can buy something that is a good company or a good investment going up and still buy it at too high of a price. And, and even things that are going up longer term have corrections along the way. 
And so what happens for a lot of investors is they buy something and they buy it where it's already very deviated from long-term you know, averages and very overbought. And so it immediately almost loses money. And so they wind up selling it because it didn't work. And then the thing turns around and just starts going higher again. And this is why we talk about things from a technical perspective a lot. Because what technical analysis tells us is the psychology of the markets. And when things get too one-sided, you typically get some type of opportunity in the next you know, few weeks to the next month or so where you can buy something at a bit cheaper, cheap, a bit cheaper basis. I'll spit that out. So, and this is why we do that work. And here, and here's an interesting sideline. I get this question quite a bit by email. Um, let's say something's trading at like $50. And, you know, we'll look at it. We, we can look at it technically, and it's, you know, three standard deviations above its 50-day moving average. It's extremely overbought. You know, all, you know all, the, all the things that tell us that potentially it's not a good buy. And so we say, you know what, I would hold off on buying that here. And this, I get these emails quite a bit. And then the stock goes to 60. And I get the email back and say, well, you were wrong. Stock went to 60. Well, about that time, the stock then corrects back to 50. Now, when it corrects back to 50, now it's, it's reversed all the technicals. It's now sitting on the 50-day moving average. It's reversed the, you know, the previous extension. It's no longer overbought. It's oversold. But wait a minute. It's at the same price it was before. Yes, it's at the same price it was before, but now it's a better entry point than it was at 50 previously because that reversal in price gave us a more opportunistic entry point where it's now holding support. It is oversold. Now it's got room to go higher. So just because you buy something at the same price doesn't mean the analysis was wrong. What it means was is that it wasn't opportunistic to buy it at that time. It now is because the internal variables have changed. And I know that's kind of a hard concept to pull across on the radio, but you know, the point is simply this is that, you know, it's important to do your homework if you're going to invest capital. And just because something's going up doesn't necessarily mean it's the right time to buy it. People buy stuff all the time that's going up and they wind up overpaying for it. So always do a little bit of homework first before putting capital at risk. And just because you buy something at the same price it was previously doesn't mean it was a bad trade. Be right back after the break. Wrap up the show. I'm Real Science Roberts, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. Be right back. I'm writing an article now. Um, the latest Social Security Administration report uh, recently out. Um, and, you know, it's not getting any better. And, and so I'm writing a report kind of going back in history, looking at kind of where we are on Social Security. And it's interesting because we talk about the idea with Social Security is that we're just going to make a few tweaks and changes here. You know, we'll, you know, we can raise the retirement age to, you know, 65, 67, 72, 912. 
you know, <laughs> whatever the number is. And, you know, maybe we kind of adjust some benefits and we can array and, and raise Social Security taxes. And that'll fix the problem. Sounds logical. But we've done it before. In fact, we've done it multiple times throughout history. And each time that we've done these changes, raising the retirement age, increasing the Social Security tax, it never fixes the problem because the estimates are always wrong. Bad calculus, underestimating demand, whatever it is. One of the bigger problems, of course, is that we keep adding more and more beneficiaries to the roles. You know, initially when Social Security was first put together back in 1935 under Roosevelt, it was just for people retiring and needed this kind of social welfare net. And there were 16 payers in for every person taking money out of Social Security at the time. So it was well-funded, no problems. Of course, as politicians figured out that, you know, giving away free money gets votes, they started coming up with more and more ideas to add people to the Social Security welfare roles. So we added wives and we added stay-at-home workers. We added, you know, firemen and you know, uh, disabled people. And I mean, just just a just a, a plethora of individuals. In fact, any group that was thought to be underserved were added to the roles, railroads. They were added to the roles of Social Security. Of course, as you add more and more people taking money out of Social Security, you need more and more people paying into Social Security, right? I mean, that just kind of makes sense. But the problem is, Twofold. One, you're adding people to the roles faster than you're growing workers. So all these estimates that we have is like, well, if we just raise taxes on Social Security, on the workers, then we'll have enough to meet the liabilities in the future. But we never do. A couple of reasons for that. Demographics. We talk about demography as destiny quite a bit here on the show because that is the one thing that you can mathematically calculate over time. You take the number of people that are being born and immigrating, and you can pretty much calculate down to the point of where they're going to die. And you can very quickly predict, based on that analysis, what your future payrolls are going to be, what your future tax collection is going to be, etc., Now, as I said, back in 1935, we had 16 people paying into Social Security for every person taking out of it. Today, it's barely above two. Again, the reason is, is you're adding a lot more people to the beneficiary roles. And you're not growing the population fast enough, either by natural birth or immigration, to offset the number of people you're adding into the pool. It's interesting. There was an article out over the weekend. This is really what, what kind of spurred my research and, and got me to uh, uh, working on this. 
A new study published by the Archives of Sexual Behavior was out and shows that Americans had a lot less sex in 2018 compared to 2009. Researchers from the Center of Sexual Health Promotion at Indiana University School of Public Health made the discovery by comparing data in 2009 and 2018 from participants of the National Survey of Sexual Health and Behavior. From the current analysis, lead author Dr. Debbie Herbenick and her colleagues examined the responses of 4,100 individuals from 2009 and 4,500 individuals from 2018, specifically focusing on how often they reported having sexual relationships. Now, they're talking about heterosexual, just to be clear. Because heterosexual sex is what produces birth. Okay, so just... Just making that, making that clear, right? Here's what they found out. The report found that uh, they found that while 24% of adults reported not having sex over the prior year in 2009, 28% reported not having intercourse over the prior year in 2018. So the number of people having sex, not having sex went up. Now, here was the interesting part. Why? Now, a couple of reasons. Now, the reasons for Americans not having as much sex as they were before is, is kind of a bit of speculation, but the speculation I thought was interesting because it, it kind of talks a lot about where we are in society, right? They note that compared to 2009, adolescents and younger adults are drinking less alcohol. Now, it's interesting because I have a lot of friends in the bar business. And one thing that they have bemoaned over the last few years is the impact of dating applications, things like Tinder and Match and others, where people no longer go to bars to meet people, right? Back in the day, we actually went to bars, hung out, had drinks, danced, you know, whatever, and that's how we met other people. Nowadays, most of that happens, a lot of that, I shouldn't say most of it, a lot of it happens you know, on phone applications, swipe left, swipe right. Brent's a constant swipe lefter for other people. <laughs> other reasons? Spending more time on social media and playing video games. In other words, people's relationships are online more than they are on in person. And, you know, we've talked about this before is that you know, a lot of individuals, they they play video games online and they have entire friendships online of people they actually never meet. But they're very good friends with these people that they play with online, even though they've never met in real life. Same thing for social media. I've got 5,000 very close friends on social media. Never met one of them. Right? It's hard to have sex that way. Now, why is this important? Again, demography is destiny. If you take a look at fertility rates of Americans, we are now at the lowest level of fertility rates for women ever in history in the United States. Problem with that, of course, is that without fertility, rates going up, you have a demographic problem, and all these estimates about securing Social Security and we're just going to raise the age a little bit and we're going to do this or do that, and that'll fix the problem, and that's going to make Social Security solvent. 
is not true. Here's a number for you. $93 trillion. $93 trillion. The current debt in the United States, federal debt, is approaching $30 trillion. That's just the federal debt. $93 trillion is the unfunded liabilities of Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. That's what's got to be paid. Now, a lot of people in the financial industry say, oh, don't worry about it. You know, it, you're not going to lose any of your Social Security benefits. It's fine. Don't worry about it. We'll just issue more debt. We'll have to issue $93 trillion in debt. That's today. Every year that will go up because you're adding more and more people to the rolls and you have less and less people paying in. And now we're adding more and more claimants to that role. Now we want to do paid leave and we want to do paid medical care and we want to do free college and we want to do all these other things, right? It's got to be paid for. You can pay for it through higher taxes. Nobody wants to do that. So we're going to have to pay for it with debt. And the problem is, is that by paying more in debt for it, we continue to increase the interest expense, which takes more of the revenue that we have coming in from taxes just to pay the interest expense on the debt and leaves less and less money to fund the other mandatory requirements of the budget. What are the other mandatory requirements of the budget, Lance? Could you tell us? Yes. That's Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, prescription drug benefits, social welfare. That's the problem. The problem is that the Social Security problem is not fixable without increasing the population paying into it. That's a problem that we can't solve. Anyway, I've got a report coming on that out in the next uh, next week or so. So as soon as we get that up for you, I'll, I'll let you know. But we go through the entire analysis and tell you where we are and what the expectations are and how to fix it, right? That's uh, all coming up in a, in a report on Social Security. Uh, in the meantime, get by the website. Our latest report is out on the website talking about the Fed will cause the next crisis as they attempt to raise interest rates. That's on the website now. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll see you tomorrow. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.